0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachib, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Eric Prather is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, where he co directs the Aging Metabolism and Emotion Center. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and has helped hundreds of patients improve their sleep using cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Ben is here today to chat about his new book, which I quite enjoyed, titled The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Eric, welcome.
1: Thank you. Think I'm really excited to talk with you today.
0: So let's start off by talking a little bit about your work. What, what, does, that, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, my, my work here at UCSF is, is really probably 80, 85% research um, and then the rest clinical work. But thankfully, they kind of, you know, tie each other together. You know, so we do a lot of work on trying to understand sleep and the causes and consequences of poor sleep. Um, I run a laboratory here that kind of often focuses on kind of the immune system and how when people don't get enough sleep, what happens? You know, like who gets sick, who doesn't? um, And then what can we do about it, right? So we also run kind of clinical trials, trying to understand kind of how and why treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia which you mentioned CBTI um, can improve sleep and what that does for our health um, and so you know spend a lot of time writing grants and and writing papers and and running participants and uh, kind of uh, collecting all the data that we use as the science base to try to get these kind of treatments and um, kind of the sleep science moving forward um, so that we can get people sleeping better.
0: So you mentioned the data and a reference to causes and consequences. What are, what, what does the data say about the, the, the causes, the main causes of poor sleep, sleep deprivation, and the consequences in terms of how it affects our health? What What does the data say? What does the science say?
1: I think we think about the causes of things like insomnia or insufficient sleep as kind of being uh, kind of layered, right? There's like multiple layers uh, in which kind of the world can impact someone's sleep. So, right, like at the individual level, it can be psychological things like the tendency for people to experience high levels of stress or anxiety or a tendency to ruminate um, or kind of within their kind of sleeping environment, right? So not just at the individual level, but with the environmental level, kind of more local to them, like, you know, not having the right, um, you know, uh, bedroom setup, or living in a crowded space, or living in an unsafe neighborhood. And then you can kind of get it bigger and bigger into like, how policies might shape individual sleep. And we're learning a lot about kind of disparities of sleep in populations, right? So like, Individuals that uh, tend to be on the lower rung of income or education or, uh, you know, minority populations like African Americans tend to get worse and less sleep. And a lot of that is driven by policies, by environmental factors that kind of tell us, you know, drive where we live and play and work, Um, you know, opportunities around the type of uh, work-life balance that individuals can have certainly impact our sleep. Um, and so, you, you know, that, that provides an opportunity for different levels of intervention, right? I mean, you know, changes in school start times, changes in, um, you know, daylight savings, you know, plans and, and work-life balance commute times and, and things like that. But then, you know, at the individual level, obviously, we have treatments for, for improving people's sleep or extending their sleep uh, recommendations so that people can get the sleep they need. Um, because what happens, and when people don't get that, there's a, there's a lot of consequences, right? So we know that when people get kind of extended periods of sleep loss, or even just one night, we get, we see kind of robust changes in people's cognition, right? Their ability to learn, to remember things, um, pay attention, reaction times, um, but also kind of under the, you know, on the uh, kind of under the skin, you know, certainly changes in metabolism, changes in immune function, changes in um, blood pressure that, you know, at a population level, when we kind of pull all the data together, we see that people who get insufficient amounts of sleep are at increased risk for a whole host of negative health outcomes, ranging from cardiovascular disease to type 2 diabetes to obesity. Um, There's accruing evidence that short sleep duration might be a predictor of things like neurodegenerative diseases, um, like Alzheimer's disease. Um, In fact, kind of probably the the biggest, um, you know, scientific breakthrough that's happened in the sleep space in in, in a little bit of time has been the discovery of what's called the glymphatic system, which is the system in our brains that actually clears out the metabolites that build up throughout the day. And it turns out that that system becomes online when we're sleeping. So, you know, actually kind of putting the biological mechanism through which, Um, you know, not getting enough sleep might impact our brain health.
0: So a lot to unpack there. I want to come back to, you mentioned environmental factors, policy. What I'm thinking is circadian rhythm. You know, you mentioned minority populations. I'm thinking of people who have to work the night shift or get up before the sun rises uh, who don't have the luxury of of working remotely or, you know, having windows where they work. And so can you spend a little, you mentioned daylight savings too, which is something I've talked about in the show recently, where I think it's a terrible idea that they're going to make that permanent. I'm curious for your take. I'm, I'm not, I've yet to talk to an expert about that and you would be the guy to talk to. So I want to get your take. I think it's terrible for kids, but at any rate, so can, can we just spend a minute on that in terms of the power of natural light, our circadian rhythm and... The, the role it plays with regards to environment and setting ourselves up for success with sleep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, the circadian rhythm is kind of, you know, one of the two things that really regulates our sleep. Um, and, you know, it is very um, sensitive to environmental factors um, called zeitge- zeitgebers, right? And kind of the, the one that entrains, is strongest in entraining our circadian rhythm is sunlight. Um, you know, it it kind of in the mornings. Morning sunlight will shut down our melatonin system, and you know allow those that alertness to kind of take hold. And so, the more that we can keep that regulated, the the, the better off we are. Um, you know, shift work is is a great example when you know individuals, because of their occupation, are forced into what's called a circadian misalignment, meaning that they are needing to be asleep when they uh, usually want to be awake, right? Because then they and then they have to work at night when um, they, you know, want to be asleep, their body wants to be asleep. And that can cause a lot of havoc uh, for individuals, people that are shift workers are at increased risk for a number of different things. Um, You know, in fact, in the UK, um, shift work is uh, categorized as a carcinogen, because of the uh, link between cancer incidents and so and that just really underscores how important the circadian rhythm is and what happens when individuals have have that um, kind of perturbed on a chronic basis I mean I think you know I so I work with a, a lot of shift workers and it's hard to find um, good treatments for them because you know they're really you know you're kind of fighting biology right like it's just like a misalignment of someone's kind of obligation with um, their biology. I mean, some people, though, you know, are obviously on a different, uh, tend to uh, be on a continuum with respect to someone's circadian rhythm. So there are individuals that um, might select into shift work because of their circadian rhythm. And so these are individuals that have kind of a a very strong delayed sleep uh, phase. So these are these, you know, your extreme night owls right? The folks that want to go to sleep at like seven in the morning and get up at 4 p.m. And so, you know, it's important to know that like not all shift work is the same, but it, you know, it tends to be the individuals that can maintain that uh, lifestyle in the long term are ones that maybe have this kind of more extreme phenotype of their circadian rhythm. I will also say that, you know, the the people that have it the hardest and, and where we see the biggest cost. Um, with respect to individuals' health are those that have to rotate. So, people that have to go back and forth between night and day shift. Um, and so, you know, that that kind of change is, is really an extreme, like imagine being in kind of an extreme jet lag, right, all the time. And and we all know how, how that can feel. And so, you know, that over time can impact both your health and your well-being, right? I mean, it's... Um, you know, it really, when you're not getting the sleep you need, you're never feeling restored. Um, that can have a quite an impact on your mood um, and your ability to thrive in your day-to-day life. You know, the other thing you mentioned was, you know, daylight savings, right? So, yeah, that, the, the, you know, currently the, the plan is to kind of make daylight savings permanent. Um, that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine... Um, has come up with a come out with a consensus statement against that idea, and that the the best case for everybody's health and well being because of the circadian rhythm um, would be to uh, maintain standard uh, time. And so, you know, we'll see we'll see how that goes. Um, you know, policies can be changed and they can be changed back. Um, I, you know, I think the concern is that uh, there may be a health consequence. Um, to that, particularly among people that are living in areas where there's very, there'll be very little, um, morning light, uh, as a consequence.
0: Yeah. And I think most people who have children or have to commute early, you know, if I think of kids, you're getting, you're going to, your kids are going to be waking up before the sun rises and be at school, whether you're dro- you're walking them or driving them, or they're getting on a school bus in darkness. And so I think of the unintended consequences with school children.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, like, so, yeah, you know, I have an 11-year-old and I have a six-year-old, uh, so fifth grade and first grade. And I mean, as it is, it's it's hard to get them up. I mean, you know, and, and it is it is here in San Francisco at, at this time of the year, it is dark, fairly dark. I mean, you know, as we end daylight savings in a, a couple of weeks or a week or so, um, you know, it'll be a little bit better for a short period of time. That entrainment is is really important. I mean, we know that, you know, during development and in adolescence, there's already changes to people's circadian preference. Um, you know, we uh, adolescents tend to become more delayed um, for a short period of time. It's kind of n- a normal part of development. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's interesting to think about kind of what these policy changes might look like and you know I, my hope is that you know we'll, at the very least we'll take a, a hard look at the data as it accrues um and use that to inform you know future policy changes if they're if they're needed
0: well i'm glad there was a, a statement by that association because i i remember reading reading it and i think there was one association i want to say it was like the convenience stores it, it was something odd like an odd trade group. I wouldn't have expected the convenience store. And I'm pretty sure it was convenience store to come out against this, but I'm glad that there's been a, a, a statement from the people who actually know sleep and circadian rhythm. Uh, cause as a parent, as a parent, I'm like, this is a terrible idea. Uh, so uh, can you talk a little bit more about how we can all try to optimize our circadian rhythm? If we are fortunate enough, or we're, we're not, working a night shift? How, what, what can we do to make sure we're set up for success there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so I mentioned there, you know, there's a lot of environmental things that kind of tell your body what what it's supposed to be doing, right? And, and so the more predictable those things can be, kind of the more entrained your rhythm is. And so, you know, you know, the first thing that you start with is kind of maintaining a stable wake time, right? And that can be challenging for people. Um, you know, a lot of people like to sleep in on the weekends, um, things like that. But, you know, from a circadian rhythm point of view, uh, you know, maintaining a stable wake time is, is kind of the first step. Um, and, and what that will do, ultimately, is make your kind of bedtimes more predictable. So, in this book, I talk a lot about, you know, we don't make sleep happen kind of sleep comes to us, right? Like it kind of washes over us. The one thing we can control though, is when we wake up. Um, and so, you know, for people that have insomnia, for instance, that's, that's a better approach because you don't want to put all the effort at, at bedtime to be like, oh, I need to be in bed. I need to be asleep. Um, but, you know, even from a circadian rhythm perspective, it's something that we can control. Um, and once you set that wake time, the next step is to try to get um, some, some early morning sunlight you know, and if you don't, if you live in a place where, you know, sunlight isn't easily available um, you know, I, I, did, did my graduates training in, in Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the U S and you know, Pittsburgh is known for lots of second place things, but it's second, second place in, for the most cloudy days next to Seattle. Um, and at least that's, that's what they tell us. And so, you know, it was really hard to get sunlight. And I will say in my Uh, psychology friends, we all had light boxes. So, you know, it's something that if you can't get early morning sunlight, or it's too difficult for you to get kind of that directly in your eyes, um, you know, a light box at 10,000 lux uh, is, uh, is certainly sufficient. And we know we say like 30 minutes, and that really will help and train your circadian rhythm. And then after that, Um, you know, there are lots of other things in our environment that can help and train our rhythms to keep it in a healthy space. And so, you know, that is, you know, kind of the next big one is around mealtimes, um, and keeping those consistent, uh, you know, this is kind of most obvious when people are out, when their circadian rhythm is misaligned and they're trying to get it back in place. So like, for instance, if you go, you know, into uh, a different time zone, say you go from the West coast to the East coast of the United States. Uh, that three-hour difference, you know, the thing that will help people get back on track most quickly is, um, you know, uh, standardizing the meal times in the place that you're in. So, you know, start eating even if you're not hungry, because that will that will put you in a place that will tell your body, like, I'm in a different zone. I need to shift my circadian rhythm, and so the more you know, you can be consistent with that, um, the the more uh, robust it can be. And then the 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 other thing that you know has been shown to be effective in maintaining people's circadian rhythm is physical activity, right? So doing physical activity, ideally around the same time each, each day, um, which will also help and train your rhythm, allow you to uh, kind of make it more predictable for your body, Cause your body will know what it's supposed to do around that time. Right? Like I, I always talk about, you know, our brain is like just like a big predicting machine. It's just taking in all the information it can to kind of make the best predictions and decisions about how to use metabolic resources the circadian plays a role in that too because it lives in our brain and so the more uh predictable things can be for us kind of just the better things work in general and that that, that, that's exactly true for the circadian rhythm and then finally at the end of the night right as the sun goes down that's another place where you want to be protecting protecting yourself against light exposure um you know there is a lot of talk about kind of blue light exposure from screens that we know can you know impact um melatonin production and and kind of slow that um and so you know you just have to be thoughtful about that you don't want to you know as it gets as the sun goes down as you kind of begin that transition into kind of bedtime or your evening you know you certainly want to be protecting yourself against bright lights and kind of bright screens uh, though you know I, I also make a case in this book that um, you know for people that are trying to get to sleep it's it's often around the around the content that people are consuming that keeps people awake, less so the the blue light. but you know for people that are sensitive um, to that, then you know certainly we thankfully have ways you know whether it's kind of night shift mode on your phone or like on your computer or what have you to try to protect that so um all of those things together will help uh, maintain a robust circadian rhythm.
0: A lot to unpack there in terms of the the content you're watching, I couldn't agree more., uh, my wife and I will often you know go to Hulu or Netflix and try to watch something somewhat entertaining and it helps unwind us. It helps relax yes. us, get our get our mind off of work. If we were to watch you know perhaps the news that can be a little intense, I have a feeling we'd have a lot more trouble getting to sleep. Yes. Uh, with that said, you know, I'm going to spend a little little bit more time on light. So, you know, you mentioned Pittsburgh, Seattle having clouds is the sun still out there though. Like if you get outside, you're not, you know, it's, you're not going to be, uh, you know, getting a tan per se, but like the, the sun, the, the sun is still there. So you, you can still benefit from the light it's not like if there's a cloud you can't go outside if it's cloudy you could still go outside and get that natural sunlight
1: right that's i mean that's absolutely true um you know i mean i i think uh you know i mentioned pittsburgh and in, in, in part because uh because of the the cloudiness and the winters there's you know a, a fair amount of seasonal affective disorder that that happens um, there and so uh i think that's part of it but um no absolutely i mean i think when people can get outside, I, I guess. I have definitely run into challenges where people are at home and, you know, it's too cold outside or, you know, they, they don't have, you know, ample access to sunlight and that's where kind of light boxes can really play or, or, you know, it's a convenience factor, right? Like they can like eat breakfast and just do it versus kind of get, you know, getting out. I mean, the best case is like when people have pets and they're like, Oh, I'm going to go, I'll walk my dog around this time. Uh, and that, that's, but you know, also as the seasons change, um, you know, that, that's where it can become a little bit more challenging based on your work schedule and and the like. Can you talk a little bit more about the light box? Cause if I'm listening,
0: I'm I'm thinking, you know, what is it? Are there brands? Where can I get one? Cause I think many have heard that artificial light, you know, is not optimal for your circadian rhythm. So if there is a specific type of, of lighting one should look for. I I would love to spend time on this one.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think so. There's like it doesn't need to be fancy. I think the the primary criterion that you would look for in a light box is one that is that will give out ten thousand lux, which is a unit. And so, you know, that you know that that is sufficient, right? Like that's that's what you're looking for. Um, You know, there there are probably like fancier versions and more economic versions, but the goal with respect to kind of getting the light that individuals need um, in the early morning is, is just that. And so, you know, that's what I would look for. Um, You know, I think the other thing that I always want to make sure that I bring up when, when we talk about light exposure and these light boxes is like more, isn't necessarily better. In this case, right? Like, Because I've definitely run into folks that like, oh, I got this light box and you go to their office and it's like on all day, you know, and, and we don't think that that's probably great for circadian rhythms. I'm not sure if there's like tons of data on that, but, um, you know, it's not... The idea is that you just do it in the morning, you can do it for 30 minutes um, and, and kind of go about your day. Uh, I mean, again, getting outside is better for lots of reasons, right? Like it, like, you know, you get fresh air, you get physical activity. Um, there's lots that we've learned about the importance of nature in our environment. And, and, you know, you can kind of bundle it with other things you do, like getting that first cup of coffee, having some social interactions, all those things. Um, but you know, for, for those that that's, that's, that's not as not part of their lifestyle. Um, you know, just, uh, the light box, 10,000 lux
0: easy peasy. What, what about for those who have early school drop-off or commuting early in the morning, does being in a car driving in natural sunlight count for anything?
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, it it certainly can. I mean, I guess if it's, if it's sunny out, I mean, there is, you know, concerns about kind of like how much is getting through your windows, right? Like, is there you know, darkening on your windows that like obstructs that. I mean, you know, I think there are devices where you can, you can actually check that, but um, I I wouldn't overthink it. You know, I mean, I think, um, and and a lot of this is, is uh, it can often be tracked back to like, you know, how are you sleeping at night? Like is, I I do worry that, you know, some of these things and and some of these industries that have been created um, have create also created like a, a lot of anxiety for people, related to their sleep and you know i and so you know i think we can kind of add these things on but um you know kind of maintaining kind of a healthy predictable lifestyle will probably get you a lot farther than you know buying a light box but uh you know for for those that where that you know their circadian system might not be optimized um it's certainly something to do uh, but it's true that um you know, you have to fit it in the context of your of your life. And if you're getting outside already, and you're getting, you know, whatever amount of sunlight that you're getting, that's that that might be sufficient. Um, if it feels like it's not, you can try something else. I mean, I think this is, this is where, um, you know, people have this opportunity to do these like very um, simple experiments to see what might help them, right? I mean, it's, uh, and it's worth doing, uh, especially a bit if it kind of improves your kind of health and well being um, from your perspective.
0: So you also mentioned jet lag as a as a huge circadian rhythm disruptor, and you know I used to fly a lot. I have to I have to fly again, and so I, I want to. I think a lot of people are starting to fly again. Um, I already have begun to fly quite a bit, and so with that said, you know, so for example, if someone has to fly from the east coast to west coast or vice versa, is there a threshold in terms of length of stay? where it makes sense to cross over to the other time zone? You know, for example, I have to fly next week from Miami to LA. I'm there for 48 hours. Does it make sense for me to adapt specific time zone or not even try? Whereas maybe I was there for five days. I need to make the crossover. Is there like a critical threshold or
1: not? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if there's a critical, I mean, so people tend to, Vary quite a bit in how well their body adapts, and it. I and it also might change over time as people age, right? Like the body becomes like just generally less flexible as as we age, as as you know, we probably all or many of the listeners uh, can attest to. But uh, so so you know, I think it it also depends on, um, you know, so in general, your body will begin to adjust on its own just because the environmental stimuli. That you're experiencing right like around sunlight around eating times around uh all the other things your body's going to continue to try to figure out like what what time zone am i in um based on the the external environment uh and so you can try to halt that if you want if you don't want to cross over right like you can try to kind of regulate your sleep times in such a way uh that will allow for that and protect yourself from sunlight or you know ensure that you're in darkness to try to kind of uh, facilitate that, um, you know, it's much easier for people, typically easier for people to adapt when they go from east to west, um, largely because we have the capacity to keep ourselves up later, right? Like our homeostatic sleep drive helps with that, that we can kind of like push it later so that we can get on you know, more quickly on the time zone there. And then you have a couple of mornings where you're waking up early, but you know, oftentimes people don't mind that. Right. It's the it's the opposite. When people go to the East Coast, they have to pull themselves out of bed, uh, even though they don't feel like they should if they're coming from the West. And then, you know, they they uh, have a hard time getting to sleep, um, you know, at that at the at the time they want to stay up later on coming from the West, to the East. Uh, And so, you know, in that instance, you know, we do have some tools to try to shift people along um, that that can be helpful. But, uh, you know, the the question of whether someone should or not is really, you know, a personal one. There is no kind of clear data on like whether someone should or shouldn't.
0: In terms of, that makes sense. It's personal. Um, With regards to jet lag, uh, are there any hacks, if you will? You know, hydration is a big one, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, from, you know, one of the things that we do have worked out is how to help people shift in the context of jet lag. Um, you know, hydration is absolutely important. Um, but I think, you know, the th- the tools that we typically use are a combination of, of light exposure, like which we've already talked about it, but also uh, melatonin supplementation, right? So like lots of people use melatonin, and it's like, you know, and, and it seems like the trend is, is growing and kind of the use of melatonin. Um, admittedly, the data around it, helping people with insomnia is, is fairly weak. So kind of like in randomized clinical trials, you know, there's not like a ton of evidence that it's going to help people compared to a placebo. Uh, but what it has been shown to do is be good at, um, helping shift your circadian rhythm, right? So, so the way in which we do it when people have jet lag is we recommend that, uh, you basically take a really low dose of melatonin. Um, and so this is around like 0.5 milligrams, which is generally much lower than you would see at like your convenience store or, or health food store. Um, but uh, but it, it seems like that low dose is, is, uh, is good for this. And then you have people take it about five hours before the bedtime in the place that they're in. Right, so if you're flying from Los Angeles to New York and you want to be in bed uh, to at eleven o'clock New York time, which of course feels like eight o'clock to you coming from L.A., um, then you want to take this low dose melatonin around six p.m. in New York, right? And what that does is, and it's and it's somewhat counterintuitive to people because it's it's thought of as like a supplement that will help people fall asleep. What it does is it really just cues your brain to start making melatonin, right? It like gives it a little taste and like says your brain's like, "Oh, uh, your pineal gland is going to start making, you know, releasing melatonin in your system." And melatonin is just it kind of sets the table for sleep, right? And it helps slowly shift it earlier. And then, you know, so so hopefully that helps. But then also the the next morning when you wake up, You wake up at the time that you're supposed to, you know, you drag yourself out of bed. No one likes it. But then as soon as you can, if you're in a hotel room, you you know, open up the shades, get that sunlight right in your eyes um, so that you can shut down that melatonin system that your body is used to making because you're on the West Coast and you think your body's going to be sleeping three hours more. Um, And so, you know, doing that uh, consistently will help speed up the shifting. It's not overnight right? Like we, you know, that that's not how it works. I mean, again, some people are are more uh, adept, their body is more adept at doing this than others. Uh, but it will absolutely accelerate the process of helping you shift in the context of jet lag. So
0: if you want to, if you're uh, on the East Coast, and, and you're traveling on the West Coast, and you want to go to bed on, you know, 11 o'clock East Coast time, 8pm 8, 8 Pacific, you should take it, uh, six hours before, so that's that's six is, is it six hours bef- before your ideal bed? would you be taking it at two pm Pacific if you want to go to bed at eight pm Pacific?
1: It is much more effective for when you're going west to east. Got it, got it. interesting. Yeah, I mean, usually in you know in the con so we also use this this tactic in trying to shift people's circadian rhythm when they have like a delayed sleep phase. Like they're night owls, but also when they're kind of like morning larks, right? They have an advanced sleep phase, like people who want to, uh, g- you know, feel like they need to go to bed at like seven p.m. and then they wake up at three o'clock in the morning, which is a little bit more similar to what happens when people go from east to west, right? They want to go to bed earlier, be their body wants to go to bed earlier than they should, and they wake up way earlier. And so in that case, we actually do the opposite for advanced sleep phase, um, and, but presumably could be effective for uh, people, you know, going from, from East to West, um, is we actually do the light exposure in the evening, right? So like, because the issue is that your, your melatonin system is starting earlier, uh, than you'd like it to, because you've gone from the East coast to the West coast, right? Like, and so, to, so the, a way of delaying that is to actually get some of this light exposure the best you can. And, and, and this is a, you know, a little bit challenging if you're just doing kind of trips, but, uh, you know, that will actually slow your melatonin system in the West Coast. And then, and then in extreme cases, we also, uh, for, for advanced sleep phase, who are waking up, say, at 3 in the morning, um, because of their circadian rhythm, we may actually do supplement, uh, melatonin supplementation when they wake up at 3, just to see if we can kind of extend out their, their, uh, their rhythm a little bit longer so they can sleep longer. Um, you know, the supplementation in the morning time, you know, in my experience is a little bit more challenging because like people are awake, they're like, you know, they take it like sometimes it works a little bit, but the light exposure can definitely help kind of shift that. I mean, the good thing is that for most people, um, when they're traveling east to west, if they're trying to shift their rhythm, which is what, what we're, what we're talking about, um, you know, you can usually kind of white knuckle it a little bit and stay up later. And that will also help with this shifting.
0: So... I'm glad you you spent time on melatonin because I think what you've described is the proper use case for melatonin. It is a great product for resetting your rhythm. 0.5 milligrams is a safe dosage. And I think there's a huge melatonin problem. You mentioned the dosages. If you go to any pharmacy or you look online or 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 vitamin or, or supplement retailer, the dosages are three, five, ten, and the problem is you build a tolerance to it. it. is not a It's not intended for daily usage, and you end up building a tolerance to it. It can screw with your hormones. You can't get yourself out of bed. One of one of my anecdotally, I'll share. Uh, we had a, a friend of mine, Drew Ramsey. He's a he's a doctor, a psychiatrist on the show, and he was telling me he was treating uh, a girl in high school. And the girl was just like chronically fatigued, you know, couldn't get out of bed, led to anxiety and depression. And what he he identified the problem. The girl was taking so much melatonin, I think it was 10 milligrams. She couldn't get out of bed. So it was like guzzling coffee all day and then couldn't get to sleep. And it was this vicious cycle. And so I think, You know, it's just a watch out for melatonin. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But I think what you described is the intended usage, which makes a lot of sense. So, I want to circle back. You mentioned environment is a big one. What's the other big category, if you will, in terms of of sleep?
1: I mean, so, yeah. So, environment is a big part of it. And then, you know, we have good understanding of the levers that kind of move around our sleep biology, right? And so behavior is the other big bin. Um, I I mean, I think of it as kind of there's three three kind of bins for this. There's the environment, there's our behavior, and then there's kind of our psychology, right? Like all of those things have to be kind of well-aligned to ensure that we have a restorative night of sleep, right? And um, in the context of insomnia, it's often it often starts with kind of some type of um, you know precipitating factor, like right, like a stressor in the environment or something happens in your life or you know things things like that that kind of create an, an acute sleep problem, uh, and that's really under. You know, totally reasonable. Like, right? We're kind of as humans, we're we're built for these things. We're you know, ask any parent. We you know, we can kind of go without kind of reliable restorative sleep for quite some time. Um, And so, under kind of acute stress, you know, it's important to be able to kind of mount your resources and and have bad nights of sleep. But the challenge is that even when that stressor is gone, oftentimes the psychology of it and the behaviors are what perpetuate some of these sleep problems. Um, and so, you know, in our clinic, we spend a lot of time focusing, you know, checking to make sure the environment is is appropriate, right? Like, the, you know, if there are things that we can do, right? So ensuring a, a, a good, you know, and restorative bedroom and environment that facilitates sleep. But, you know, most of the action is in our behaviors and kind of our... our Relationship psychologically with sleep, right? I mean, uh, and and so you know that's 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 where we spend the the bulk of our time working on.
0: So before we, we we jump to behaviors and psychology, let's touch on in the book. You have these sleep basics. You have a basics checklist. Let's just walk through walk through the checklist so everyone can establish. You know, if, if they're if they if they got the bases covered.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, so, you know, when we think about um, our sleep environment, you know, it's the, the first three important pillars to it are like, you know, is your bedroom dark, right? Is your bedroom quiet? Um, and then is, you know, how is the temperature? We know that temperature can help facilitate um, a good night of sleep you know, our our core body temperature has to drop throughout the night. And, and so, you know, usually keeping the room, you know, you know, around like 65 degrees Fahrenheit, um, seems to be kind of a nice sweet spot for people, though it can vary, right? Depending on individuals, you know, we certainly see this as like, you know, women transition through the menopausal, uh, transition, you know, that there can be challenges around how we ensure that, uh, you know, the temperature is well regulated, and sleep can be disturbed. Um, And so, you know, those are the first three things that we do. And then it's around kind of, you know, are the are you doing things that are, you know, clearly gonna get in way get in the way of your sleep. And so this is often around the context of substances, right? So caffeine, we know that caffeine has a a half life of six hours about. Um, And so that means, you know, if you have a a, a double espresso at 4 p.m., that at 10 p.m., you still have an espresso left in your bloodstream, right? And so, no surprise that that makes it hard for people to fall asleep. And even if they can fall asleep, it tends to leave people's sleep more fragmented across the night and potentially lighter, at least the perception is that it feels lighter. Um, Alcohol is, you know, of course, uh, a a well-known chemical that can help people fall asleep. But it, you know, it certainly leads to a suppression of rapid eye movement sleep. So this is REM sleep, the sleep that, you know, associated with dreaming. And as a consequence, because REM sleep is suppressed, people tend to get a big dose of deep sleep more so than they would have had had they not had alcohol. But then there's this REM rebound that happens throughout the night that's associated with more fragmentation, kind of, uh, you know, just less restorative sleep. Also, alcohol, you know, hits on these GABA, GABA receptors in our brain that promote relaxation. And, but, you know, alcohol doesn't stay in our system forever. And so, when it, when it kind of falls off, your brain notices, and then that becomes kind of uh, also leads to more fragmentation in our sleep. Um, and so, you know, those are the kind of the main things that we focus on with respect to basics, but also other things like exercise right? Exercise for most people can be really helpful in, in promoting sleep, but the timing matters, right? So like if it's too close to bedtime um, for a segment of the population, it can, you know, it amps up that sympathetic nervous system and can make sleep more challenging to bring on or uh, might make it, you know, less restorative and at least in its, the way it's perceived. But, you know, for others, sometimes that exhaustion factor can be helpful, but You know, as a rule, we always say you know try to not do any kind of uh, big exercise three hours before bedtime. Um, And so, you know, I I mean, I think when I think of basics, that's that's what I think of.
0: You know, when I when I've ever had a problem falling asleep, and and I'm pretty good about falling asleep. My wife has struggled with with sleep, and her problem when she does struggle, and my problem when I struggle is, I think, and I think this is pretty common curious, your take is can't shut off your mind. Some, something at work, something in our personal life, just can't shut it off. Um, what should one do when when that's the issue? And my guess is that that's pretty prevalent issue.
1: I mean, absolutely. And, and I think it's important to note that like there is very little likelihood that there are people that have never had that problem. And so the expectation can't be that this will never happen, right? Because you know, thankfully, we have these brains, and they they can be very active, um, and 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 sometimes it's in you know important to have that that activity despite the fact that it impacts our sleep. But um, if it if it becomes a a chronic issue, um, one of the most important things to do is to not let that brain activity kind of fracture your relationship with the bed. So one really key thing is that the bed itself is a huge environmental trigger for bringing on sleep, right? Our body knows what to do when it's in bed, and it it allows us to let go. But if people have kind of night after night of really active brain activity, kind of worries, stress, that will kind of change the relationship with the bed, right? Your body will begin to get confused and start to think, oh, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do in bed. And it kind of becomes this like, self you know fulfilling prophecy or this feed forward mechanism and i will say in our clinic you know people with insomnia say it all the time that they're like you know i was feeling really sleepy and then i got in bed and my brain woke up right and that that is an example like a great example of what we call like a conditioned response right the bed itself has now become a trigger for that activity right and so The way to break that, to repair that relationship is really to kind of, um, when you notice that it's happening, and usually it's like, you know, people, it's, you know, we give people like 20 minutes to fall asleep and see if, if that happens. But if their brain is still worrying away, we tell them to kind of get out of bed. We need to break this relationship between like your anxiety or thinking and the bed. So we have people get out of bed, kind of go somewhere else that's not the bed do something that's relaxing or quieting, you know, maybe it's distraction away from the thing that's getting your mind going. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's reading, maybe it's watching television, whatever it is, things that are, that facilitate relaxation for you. And then when you begin to feel that sleepiness cues, kind of getting back into that space, you want to get back in bed to try to rebuild that relationship. And over time, that will become, you know, the bed again will become this trigger for sleepiness right?
0: So interesting.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it, yeah, so it's a technique called stimulus control. It You know, it, it might sound familiar as like, a, you know, a classical conditioning, like Pavlov's dog and all those kind of things. Like, there's tons of things in our environment that that we don't even recognize kind of tells our body what to do. Um, you know, I, an example that I've always used is that, you know, for a long time, when I would get home to, uh, to my apartment in San Francisco, I would touch the doorknob and I would immediately get hungry, like because I got so used to eating something as soon as I got home, like a snack or whatever. It didn't; it, it became so prevalent that it didn't matter what time of day it was, how recently I'd eaten. Like I touched the doorknob, and my body would be like, "Oh, like let's let's make insulin. Like let's like, like you know it was." And, and and that that is that you know that really is in line with kind of the circadian rhythm too, like and the idea of kind of standardizing things because your body is trying to guess what it's supposed to be doing next. Um, and so the same is true for sleep that it really is an important trigger now the, the the example you gave is like okay well you know you're having you're having this night where your brain is really active like what can you do um, oftentimes I suggest you know trying to get out in front of it right so we have techniques to kind of try to move that things that you think might get in your way out of the bedroom and out of that sleep transition I think it's also related to this importance of having a sleep transition right that, I mean, oftentimes, uh, these days, you know, we treat our brains like computers, like like this laptop that I'm on talking to you with, like, at bedtime, people will act like, oh, I can just close the laptop of my brain and, and go to bed, right? Like, it's time to just power off. But like, it just doesn't work that way. We weren't built that way. And so it's really critical to invest in that transition, to kind of move work and worries out of out of your sleep space. And maybe that means tackling it earlier. Maybe that means kind of uh, helping yourself with uh, some some, you know, meditation or relaxation techniques, you know, before bed that kind of kind of put you into that space that will upregulate your parasympathetic nervous system. All of those things are critical. But oftentimes, you know, we don't do that, right? Like, and so just kind of identifying that as more of like an investment, like, I like to think of sleep as like an investment in kind of being a better person during the day. And that's the return.
0: Well, I also think this idea of, of separating spaces and our, and our brain's response to spaces of someone who's working from home in a studio apartment. Wow, I'm eating, I'm sleeping, I'm entertaining, and I'm working all from one place. It's like a, that's, and look, that's the reality for a lot of people. Uh, but that, you really need to, within your space, carve out spaces to do that effectively.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and like you, you might imagine any any major metropolitan city, but, you know, San Francisco is certainly it falls into this where, you know, very often it's like, yeah, someone's bed is their their desk, that is their table, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and so this idea of like, oh, you know, you can't sleep, get out of your bed. And people are like, well, where am I, I don't where am I going to go? Like, this is my place. And so, you know, I think, Re, you know, one of the things that's important about that is there are adaptations to this to kind of be more flexible for those circumstances. And it also comes up and, you know, as people age, like maybe they have chronic pain, maybe they're at risk of falling and they can't, in the middle of the night and they can't get out of bed. For lots of reasons people can't get out of bed, but it actually is about, I mean, kind of akin to what you're saying is like, you know, making it clear to your brain that what this, what I'm about to do is different than sleeping. And so, you know, whether that's you know, sometimes we have people like, you know, sit all the way up in bed, you know, so that it's like not laying down. But, you know, one thing that works really well, and I mean, I, you know, you, you see this with kids, uh, is, you know, flipping over to the other side of the bed, right? Like, you know, like where your, where your feet is at the head, at the foot of the bed, or, you know, for people that sleep alone, kind of moving to the other side of the bed that you don't usually sleep on and, and, and do the same kind of thing. Like when you begin to feel sleepy, again, you get back in your regular sleep position, and that seems to be helpful as well. And so there are these adaptations, but you're right. It's about kind of making it clear, these transitions, like demarcating in time and in space where sleep is happening and where it's not.
0: You, you just have to get creative and intentional. You know, if you're going to be working, you got to get dressed and you got to, you know, sit, sit, sit at the table. Don't do not do it in your pajamas. Uh, if you're going to eat, eat in a specific area, eat it, you know, you just have to be intentional, but it's doable. Uh so that, that that I love that's such a great actionable tip for those struggling um, with getting to sleep and and the other big problem which we've all experienced, uh, waking up in the middle of the night. How do you get back to bed? What what should, what should we do? What should we not do when we inevitably wake up in the middle of the night?
1: Thankfully, I mean, in some ways, there's nothing special about the middle of the night versus like going to bed at night. Um, I mean, the only challenge is that, you know, I I mentioned there are kind of like two main things that regulate our sleep. The first is the circadian rhythm. And the second is our homeostatic sleep drive, which is our kind of like drive for sleeping. And, you know, that is really helpful in helping people get to sleep. Like we'll, we'll kind of like build it up in clinic. Like we'll have people stay up later than they usually do. And then they'll, you know, be easier for them to fall asleep at night. Um, But then it kind of drains out. And so then, you know, people wake up in the middle of the night and they don't have as much sleepiness on board. Right. And it turns out like when people wake up, it's unfortunately, it's not, we don't think about like the best things going on in our life usually, right? Like our, our our mind is kind of filled with all the things that we should do or should have done. um, And, and, and all of these kind of like, uh, you know, turmoils. And so, I mean, again, The principle is still the same that if that happens and you say you give yourself a chance to fall asleep, get back to sleep, and it doesn't work out for you, then if possible, you want to kind of remove yourself from the situation, right? And do like a reset. And so that could be, and when you do that, you know, again, it's things that help facilitate sleep for you. Um, And, you know, those can be behaviors like, you know, reading, listening to music, you know, uh, checking out uh, shows on TV that maybe you've seen before, I definitely don't recommend like starting a new Netflix series that you couldn't wait to get into. Um, it's definitely not a time for working. It's not a time for kind of engaging in social media typically, because those, those the content and these devices are built to keep you engaged, right? So, so the important thing is to not look for ways to use this time. It's thinking about how to kind of do things that will be in the service of getting back to sleep. Um, and so, you know, other things that are effective for people are again, kind of like, you know, diaphragmatic breathing and meditation, you know, there's lots of apps out there that can help facilitate this. Um, but you know, there's also this concept called par- paradoxical, uh, uh, sleep where, uh, where, or paradoxical intention where you'll actually just try to stay awake, you know, kind of take the pressure off of getting to sleep. Cause often what happens is the effort to try to make sleep happen is what's the barrier. And so there's studies to show that like, if people do the opposite and they say, I'm just going to try to stay awake, that that takes the pressure off and it actually can facilitate sleep for some people. Um, And so, you know, all of those, all of those things. Um, And then, you know, something that often comes up uh, for people is this, uh, which I I feel is like a nice shift in mindset about this is, um, you know, there was a time where, uh, people kind of slept in two chunks, right? Um, and, and before kind of a, a indoor lighting and, and things like that, uh, at least historically. And so people, you know, during that time when they were awake, they, they actually enjoyed it, right? Like it was like a nice calm time. And, you know, the, the enemy of sleep is the distress, right? It's like, we cannot worry and, and kind of about our sleep and about our day and sleep. Like those things are incompatible. And so, um, you know, I, I, really like to try to reframe it as like so, sleep is something that washes over you, that comes to you. It's not something you make happen. And kind of, once you kind of shift that way, it, it takes some of the pressure off, um, because we're, we're resilient, right? Like people can have bad nights of sleep and still have productive, good days. And, and it's also true that people have great nights of sleep and just have unproductive days. Right, and it's not—it's not just about sleep. But when it in the middle of the night, it often feels like it's just about sleep. And so we have to kind of make sure we have remind ourselves that that's not the case.
0: I think that's such an important point that oftentimes the stress about not sleeping makes it so much worse. And this idea of embracing—you know what—I'm just having a—it's going to be a bad night, but it'll—it'll be okay—does take the pressure off significantly you know with that said if you do wake up in the middle of the night is there a, a certain time where again i'll use across a threshold where you know what you probably should get up like if if you generally wake up at 6 30 and you woke up at 4 like you know what if you can't get back to bed by 4 30 do you just say i'm just gonna power through it and get up is, is there a threshold or it makes sense just to get up and that's it
1: it certainly depends on how much sleep you've gotten, right? I mean, uh, and, you know, you, you'll know when you wake up and it's only been a couple hours, like, you you'll feel different than if you, you know, you usually get eight hours, but you've only gotten six and a half. Um, I mean, one of the things that is, is interesting is, um, you know, early morning awakenings have become, at least in our clinic, and I, you know, talking to other sleep clinicians, has become, a, you know, a bigger topic of discussion. In part because, you know, when people fall asleep, you get this big dose of sleep, right? Like, and but our sleep gets more fragmented over time. It gets lighter, right? Because the homeostatic sleep drive, this thing that, like, I think of as like a big balloon that fills up with sleepiness, is like much flatter by the end of the night, right? Like it's kind of like drained out, right? And that leads our sleep to be, you know, more fragmented and lighter, and we, you know, we just tend to wake up more, and so. During, you know, during the pandemic, you know, when, when stress was so high and for a lot of people, it hasn't abated, um, you, you know, there was just, our minds would just start going, right? Like we'd start, and it was on those early morning awakenings where it happened. Um, you know, now what, what, what we recommend is it's true that, you know, if you're getting up at six and you wake up at five fifteen, um, you know, it might be hard to get back to sleep. Right. But We also know that just rest can be restorative, right? We know that kind of, you know, this, you know, it's really interesting in kind of like in the meditation literature that we know when people are meditating, in some cases, their EEG brainwaves mirror that of light sleep, right? And so we, and, and, and so that's, it's a really interesting idea that like people just resting there, as long as they're not worrying. As long as people aren't fretting and planning and all of those things, and just kind of resting and, and and you know potentially going in and out of sleep, it's absolutely fine to kind of lay in bed. So that that is the one kind of modification where I you know about this idea of like if you're laying in bed and, and not asleep, you should get out in the early morning hours. Just because of the way that sleep is structured, it can be hard to get back to sleep, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to get up. That being said, if you are like, you're you're awake, right? And like people know this experience, like they're just awake, like I'm not going to sleep anymore, then you might as well just get up, right? With the knowing that, so maybe you got less sleep than you wanted to, and maybe you're going to have to modify your day a little bit um, because you're not going to have the same level of energy, but you know that that coming night, your body's going to compensate right? It's likely that it's going to be easier to fall asleep. Your sleep might be deeper and likely more restorative than it otherwise would have been because of the, the, you know, your balloon might be, you might wake up with it a little bit more inflated than it, than it should have been. Right. And so that means like, as you go throughout the day, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, you, you, and, and, uh, and your body will take care of you. Right. So that's, uh, that's the way I think about it.
0: So in your opinion, what's the biggest misconception about sleep?
1: The biggest misconception about sleep um, is well I'll, I'll I'll provide two things that I think. Uh, one is that it's that it's kind of a waste of time. Right? Like there is there is a consideration in this in this in the Western world in general, because we're doers, right? Like it's like um and that sleep is like the thing on the the last thing on the list to get done when the rest of the day is done um, and so that framework and you know certainly not in line with your podcast and, and other people is you know is is part of the challenge right like the, you know that people see time as finite of course and then they want to kind of fill that time to be as productive as possible and that's that short sleep. And so as a consequence people don't re, you know appreciate the fact that when people get sufficient amounts of sleep the time you use when you're awake is of a better quality, right? Like we 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 think better, we're better partners, we're better parents, we're more empathetic, we're more productive, our our cardiovascular health is better, our immune system works better. All of the things that we, you know, have values around are enhanced by spending the appropriate amount of time investing in our sleep, right? Um, and then this, the second thing, which is somewhat related, is that, you know, that sleep is just, um, you know, an, is, is an inactive process, right? That we like go to sleep, but our brain is incredibly active during that time. Um, and there's things that are, that only happen during sleep again, kind of really emphasizing the critical nature of it. And I think often people don't appreciate, um, sleep as a process. Um, and you know, that, that is, you know, part of why, uh, people don't see it as kind of the, the, the investment that it should be. What's something that only happens during sleep in the brain? I think the the best example is this glymphatic system that we're learning more about I mean that that I mean and that was like that blew people's minds like when we when that was discovered
0: so in terms of, of science that that's coming out what, what are you interested in or exciting about where do you think the field is going
1: it's exciting/ slash embarrassing about like how much we don't know about sleep um, you know and I think there are like a lot of really interesting questions that people are trying to tackle um, one is around, trying to understand sleep need, right? Like we don't have a good metric for like when someone has sufficient amount of sleep or like, you know, how much an individual really needs for sleep. You know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine's uh, recommendation is that for adults, they get at least seven hours per night to, to maintain optimal adult health. Now that's honestly mostly based on kind of population level data, you know, of of thousands and thousands of people who answered a single item question about how much sleep do you get? You know what I mean? Like, and that's like clearly not sufficient, but that's, I mean, and and it's probably pretty accurate given that like the scale, right? Like we know that that just that question will actually be pretty predictive uh, uh, at the population level, but there's clearly much more to it. And there's probably a lot more to do with Kind of, what about the architecture of it? And do does everybody really need seven hours? And like, who are the people that don't? Um, you know, there's work going on here at UCSF around the genetics of sleep and following folks who are what are called familial short sleepers. These are genetically driven short sleepers who, for whatever reason, need less sleep. Like they're more resilient. Than other people, and it seems to be genetically driven. So they can, you know, they identify these uh, these mutations in families. Then they, you know, this group will then, you know, create mice that have this mutation that'll make them short sleepers, and they can do all these tests on these mice to see like what happens. It turns out like they do not suffer the same uh, ailments that we think short sleep should produce. And so, you know, what is it about that? Like, how do we use that information to try to understand? Kind of need, um, and so I think that's really exciting. And then I think the other exciting area is around um, modulation of sleep, um, and this has mostly been in the context of um, enhancing slow wave sleep. And so slow wave sleep is kind of that deep restorative sleep. It's happens. It's it's N3 sleep on an EEG wave, and you know there are groups that are working in in different arenas to try to enhance those. While people are sleeping, whether it's like through auditory tones, um, which is kind of the most common one, and what they're finding in kind of this really early work is it may have um, you know benefits to things like cognition. Right, we know that sleep is so critical for cognition. We were thinking that sleep is you know perhaps uh, an important predictor of you know long-term brain health. And so, what if there are ways in which we can identify those that are at risk and try to modulate that to protect? or slow brain aging right and like that's that's not necessarily what i do in my work but but it's it's super fascinating and i think as we kind of gain more and more insights um, we'll be able to figure out these interventions.
0: It is fascinating. fascinating. And in closing, I'll, I'll share a hack from your book that, that I thought I, that I got a chuckle out of, you know, you hear hormetic stressors are definitely on trend, you know, a lot of people talking about cold plunges, but I have not yet heard about sticking your head in a freezer. So can you talk about sticking your head in a freezer?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny. So yeah, we do, we, we do, do some hormetic stress uh, studies here. And, and so that's what got me thinking about that. That. But, uh, you know, I mean, we know that cold exposure can be alerting. We know that, um, it can, you know, in, in certain instances, kind of like amp up your sympathetic nervous system, that's important for, for, uh, for, and, but also the novelty of it. Um, I think all of these things, so, so that was, you know, put in the book as a context of like, how do we get through kind of, uh, the doldrums of like the mid afternoon without getting a cup of coffee or what have you. And, um, you know, you know those, that might be, a way in which someone could do it. I mean there are of course other ways like exercise
0: skip the Java, skip the coffee put your head in a freezer for what five ten seconds 30 seconds give us give us some more detail I think this is this is one we may try
1: well, well in, you know in fairness you know we, we haven't done the trials to, to, to <laughs> but uh, you know I mean I think you know in the same way that people do this in the context of uh, uh, you know there's there's a pain paradigm that we do in the lab. Where we expose people to, uh, for, you know, put people's forearms in cold water as long as they can take it, um, and that we know that that has acti- you know that can activate the stress response system, and so uh, and make people much more alert. Uh, and so the same would be true uh, in in doing that. Of course, uh, you know you don't want to be on a step stool or anything like that, but uh, you know just getting getting that on your uh, head, getting you woken up a little bit, uh, can 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 get you moving hopefully.
0: Well, it's a little after three here on the East Coast, so we're going to close this interview. I'm going to go stick my head in the freezer instead of grabbing espresso. So, uh, (laughs) Eric, such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.